You're listening to Learning Capacity with Colin Klupik. This podcast is brought to you by LearnFast, improving student learning outcomes with neuroscience programs since 1999. To find out more about individual learning programs for your child, visit learnfasthome.com.au. To subscribe to this free podcast on the web or on your mobile, visit soundcloud.com slash learnfast. When lawyer John Williamson Noble began creating stories for his son about a Sydney ferry named Fergus, he had little idea about how influential they would become. Nor did he realise that he would soon develop a skill in writing beautiful stories in rhyming couplets. Inspired by the everyday happenings on Sydney Harbour, the stories began to take on a life of their own, complete with simple messages about life that could help young people navigate the challenges of growing up. Whilst it may seem unusual for stories in very simple English to emanate from the legal profession, John explains that in his line of work in corporate law, it's all about plain English, and that the match is actually not that unusual. The stories have positively influenced thousands of children, and now children are even starting to write their own stories about Fergus and his life on the harbour. In this episode, John shares his journey with Fergus Ferry. John, thanks for your time. It's a pleasure, Colin. I want to start by talking about a recent article in the Australian Financial Review, which makes the comment that you wrote the stories of Fergus the Ferry for your son. Now, presumably you were reading books to him at bedtime already. I'm curious, was there something missing for you in the books that you had available? And, you know, what kind of messages did you want him to hear? Um, The books that we read were many of the books that I read when I grew up. So books like um, Winnie the Pooh and Thomas the Tank Engine. And it occurred to me, that it'd be wonderful to have books which were more Australian-focused or stories that were more Mm Australian-focused. And there are, of course, uh, many of those, but I didn't know of many of them at the time coming from England. And at the time, I was going to work on the ferry. And I thought, well, why don't I do something like Thomas the Tank Engine, but based on Sydney Harbour? And it was a sort of natural progression from coming home off the ferry to putting Tom to bed to start telling him stories about the ferry, which is what I did. And we then developed a routine of going on a ferry ride every Sunday afternoon and telling a Fergus story during the ride. So when you were originally thinking about Thomas the Tank Engine, did you have any thoughts of uh, competition or, gee, there's no way that I could ever compete with Thomas the Tank? I mean, he's so ingrained in children's minds. Did, uh, Did you think that Fergus Ferry had a chance? Well, I didn't even think about publishing it, frankly. I just thought they'd be nice stories to tell Tom. And um, it wasn't until my wife Renee said to me that I should write them down that uh, it even occurred to me that they get published. And after writing them down, I thought, well, I'll send them off to a publisher and see what happens. And I didn't know at the time, but publishers get about 200 submissions a week. I had no idea they got that many. And I was very fortunate. I, I didn't hear for three months, and I just rang up the publisher after three months and said, could I have my manuscripts back? And they said, oh, no, they're in, in New York with our editorial committee, and they're deciding whether to publish them or not. Oh, wow. So I was, I was quite surprised and really pleased because it was a very um, off-the-cuff thing to do. But then uh, another three months later, I heard back from them, and they said they'd like to publish them. So that was very exciting. So the stories at the beginning, they didn't have any particular themes or any particular message at all. They were just interesting stories that you thought of. Is that right? Well, no, that's not right. I, I actually couldn't resist the temptation to put in um, little life lessons into, into each of the stories. And those developed as the stories went on. But 
there are life lessons in there, there um, which they're always subtle and they're never in your face, um, but they're life lessons about being brave, about learning, about being kind and inclusive. Um, there are lessons about friendship and what good friends do and what good friends don't do. And there's a little bit about bullying as well, because um, if Tom had an experience at school and I thought that we could tell a focus story about it and it would help him with that experience, I just included little lessons about that as well. And did Tom find that helpful? I don't think he even knew it was happening, actually. Uh, it was just so subconscious. It isn't, uh, there aren't lines, you, know, you mustn't bully because it's bad. It's just, you see through the characters. We, we have a couple of manly fairies, um, Horace and Boris, and their sort of byline is, I'm the manly fairy, I'm long and I'm wide. It's up to you to move aside. <laughs> and <laughs> and they're, they're the sort of, I suppose we've all come across people like this in life, but they're brusque, they're very pleased with themselves, and they push around the weaker fairies. And um, you really don't like them by the end of the books, and they get their comeuppance. And what I was hoping was by developing characters who are unattractive and unappealing, you'd actually realize that their behaviors are also unattractive and unappealing, something you really don't want to do. And um, I know Tom has never, never been a bully, and I don't, I, I don't, I suspect it's just not in his nature. But hopefully that message came through. So, with the books that you had available to you at the time, did you, did you think that any of the messages in the books were, I don't know, I guess unhelpful or just not unhelpful in terms of the fact that they were bad, but just not particularly helpful in communicating anything useful? I actually had a moment with the publisher because. Um, I was very keen to give the message about what it means to be brave and uh, that being brave doesn't mean not being scared. It means being scared and going ahead and doing the right thing anyway. And the publisher said, well, you want to be a bit careful there, John, because you don't want to get children to just randomly go off and take huge risks without thinking about the consequences. And I thought that was a really good point. So I introduced uh, another character, a smaller fairy, Angus. And Angus um, is a, a, a smaller inner harbor fairy. And one day he decides he's going to venture out on the outer harbor without having any training or without being told what to do. And he comes up against Horace and Boris, the big fairies, and they're unpleasant to him. And it's just a quiet message that, yes, um, you can learn and you can be brave, but sometimes things take time to learn and you have to be patient and be ready to just apply yourself to it and not give up um, before you take on the larger tasks which are, uh, which are above you. And that sort of uh, message, which I wouldn't have thought of raising if the publisher hadn't said to me, look, it would be quite good to get this message out there. So you've got messages now that are being published and sent out to the, to the world, let's say, and, and people are starting to look at what you've written and, and consider them as, as universal principles of, of, of life lessons and of growing up and, and helpful messages for young children. How does that make you feel? I actually really like that aspect of it. But the most important thing for me and is that the stories are good stories, that they're heart-stopping adventures, which children just feel totally engaged with. If at the end of that they can take a message away from it as well, then that's that's fantastic and it's a big plus. But um, in the animations, which we've only just started 
publishing. And we actually have a message, but I've rather than have the message in my own words, I've used quotations from people and celebrities, historical figures, politicians, and encapsulated that in messages which they've actually already given. So at the top of Captain Joe's bed, at the end of each, at the end of each story, Captain Joe um, has the same byline. And he, <laughs> off the top of my head, I can't remember what it is, but he shrugs his shoulders and scratches his head, lifts his hat and goes home to bed. And then at the end of each story on the animation, you see him lying in bed and above his bed there's a quote and it's a quote from one of those sorts of people and it encapsulates the message that's embedded in the story. Yes, I noticed one of those when I was watching an episode today and it was from Eleanor Roosevelt who said, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. Yeah, isn't that a wonderful quote? I actually, I was having a cup of tea at the time in the morning in my sort of sort of uh, around about 10.30, you know, the sort of morning break time where you take a few minutes just to consider your day. And yeah. I, read that, I read that quote and I thought, mm, that bears thinking about more often than not, I think. Yes. I hope most of the time it's true. And I think there are probably some times when it's not true, when people are just, if you are being bullied, I think it's very hard not to feel inferior. Um, but you can have amazing experiences and uh, you can be bullied and you can come through it in the right way if you have the right people to support you. And something which I've learned through Tom's school life is that if you have uh, teachers or academic staff with the right approach, actually you can come through bullying and you can come through without feeling inferior. And so that, that particular quote really struck a note for me. I must admit, there is, uh, I sense that there's a very strong message for adults. And I want to come to that a little bit more, in more detail later on. But something that's just come to me right now, which I think is worth mentioning, is that uh, sometimes I wish I had a day like Captain Joe, where at the end of the day, I could just shrug my shoulders and scratch my head and go to bed. <laughs> it's just something really lovely about yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it? And it's funny how everything ends up in these stories, just at his bedtime, <laughs> he gets home and goes off to bed. But I think sometimes he'd prefer to go to the, down to the pub for a, a drink or two, but <laughs> he never does. Well, I wondered a little bit about that as well. I thought, geez, does Captain Joe get out much? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, he's, very cons- he's very consistent. <laughs> well, he's the ideal employee, isn't he? Yeah. I suspect yeah. Fergus the Ferry turns up on time every day. So <laughs> I'm curious, did you know that you had it in you to write so simply? I mean, from, from yeah. an outsider's perspective, I, I look at the, the law profession and I think complex language and I don't know whether that's right or wrong but then I I have that preconception in my head and then I I look at these wonderful stories and I think how did you do that? It's actually it's a surprising uh, thought but the legal profession at, at the area I practice in which is corporate law is all about plain English and making documents so that clients don't feel alienated by them and can actually understand them which is very different to how it used to be and different how it is in some jurisdictions around the world still. So whenever I look at a deal that I do, it might be a 60-page document. My first question is, does it tell a story? And the second question is, does it tell a story in a way that the client can understand without being alienated? That's fascinating. Sorry, I I just think that's fascinating because I've never heard that before. I've never made made that association with law, if you know what I mean. No, and people don't, I think, but it is how the law is developing, certainly in Australia anyway. 
and it's actually the perfect discipline uh, for writing stories. You want to get a message across as clearly as you can and as briefly as you can. And it is a challenge. I, I actually love the challenge of writing. For some reason, the stories came to me in rhyming couplets. And finding the rhyming couplets to tell a story in just the limited time that you have, because they are 16-page spreads, uh, spread books, and you can't have more than really six six lines mm. on a page. So telling the story in that limited uh, number of couplets was a real challenge. It's like doing a crossword puzzle or a Sudoku puzzle. It's um, it was actually really rewarding. I was going to ask you whether that was intentional, whether that just came out. So you, that just seemed to be the natural best way to do it. Honestly, I didn't know I could do it before I even started. But then I just found myself telling the stories to Tom in couplets and thought, well, this is fun and kept it up. And ironically, I've heard now that children actually like the rhyme and they like the couplets because they're sort of predictable and... Um, it actually helps them understand the stories. So that was sort of a reverse thing. It's not something I knew before I even started doing it. Well, it's already catching on with me. I can tell that tonight I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be saying to my wife, uh, dear, I'm going to scratch my head and go to bed. I've had enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I find that a, a very interesting uh, revelation that that just seemed to, to come out and you, and you didn't even know that, that you could do it. I so, have no idea. Yeah. So looking back over the years and, and mm. seeing how this has evolved. I mean, I, I guess one of the first questions that, that comes to mind, and it's, a, I guess, on one level, a bit of a silly question, but um, have you ever thought about writing a contract in rhyming couplets? I would love to write a contract in, in rhyming couplets, and I'd love to have Peter Townsend, who's the illustrator on the Fergus books. He also illustrated Bananas in Pajamas. I would love to have him illustrate one of my contracts. That would be the best fun. Well, I'm not sure any clients will like <laughs> let me do it. Well, I think there's a, there's a really good point of differentiation there for any uh, law schools who happen to be listening in. Any deans of law might be thinking, well, there's a new subject that we can in- introduce. Uh, <laughs> plain, ang- uh, plain English law writing by studying rhyming couplets. I think there's a lot of yeah. mileage in that. There could well be. There could well be. It could be a new, a new direction to take the law in. <laughs> <laughs> so coming back to where I wanted to go with this thought, um, looking yeah. back over these years, uh, the, because this began in the, in the 2000s, yeah. um, looking back and seeing how the law has evolved in terms of its language and how your stories have evolved, how yeah. has that influenced your view on improving literacy or the importance of teaching literacy to young children? Well, I'm actually not an expert in that, so I, I think of, I, w- I would have very little to say of value about that. But um, just seeing Tom, who is dyslexic, and seeing um, the benefits he's had from all the interventions he's had. He's now, he started off as dyslexic, and um, after doing um, all the interventions that he's had with speech pathologists and so on, he is now able to read, and he does read three or four, or five books a week. Wow! Um, it's the importance of literacy is something that we we're very conscious of because it's completely changed his life. To um, from being regarded as one of the not so bright people in the class to being regarded highly by the by the teachers, um, and that's solely through his ability to become literate and then express his thoughts clearly. 
Wow, that's incredible. And that actually rings true with a couple of conversations that I've had with other guests on the program where we've talked about things like... Um, uh, take maths as an example. Maths, well, maths and English are always the ones that are talked about the most frequently. But maths, yeah. once you get up to the higher levels of maths, and I think this starts at around about year nine, ten, um, you, you might have a whole paragraph of text with a few numbers mm-hmm. dotted throughout it, where, which tells us a short story about someone who goes shopping. They have X dollars. They need to buy the following products. Um, how much of each can they buy, and how much change would they take if they had a hundred dollars? Now, essentially, yeah. that's a language question. And there are a couple of mathematical computations thrown in there, but I guess if if a student is suffering from a, a language impairment of some variety, and in this case you've mentioned dyslexia, I can yeah. imagine that that would be enormously debilitating for a, a young person to, to, to even start thinking about the maths because they, they don't understand the story. Absolutely. And uh, it was quite interesting seeing uh, Tom on his journey through school because he was regarded as a bright child when um, he... he he was in his early, early years at school and children weren't reading. And then as soon as reading came along, um, he would contribute in class and orally he was outstanding. But as soon as he had to write, um, he, he just couldn't. And that affected teachers' perceptions of his intelligence. Whereas it wasn't a mark of his intelligence, it was a mark of his um, capability to write and nothing more. But it, it, the two tend to get mixed up, I think. So when he was when he was competent um, orally, were there any particular areas that he was particularly competent in, or was it just generally across the board? And then therefore, it came out in all of his classes. Was there anything specific about it? I think he was strong in he was strong in English and history and um, things which involved a narrative, and um, weaker obviously in things where he was actually asked to apply himself in terms of. Um, physical skills like handwriting. So Fergus Ferry was obviously a, a well, a perfect match, really, because you, you're taking, as we've said before, great life lessons and simple insights and turning them into these rhyming couplets, which, when you read them, are actually quite simple to remember. I'm still thinking about scratching my head and going to bed. And, <laughs> and I, you know, yeah, I, well, well, it's true. I mean, every sto- every story starts and finishes with the same line. And I think that gives it a sort of sense of predictability and comfort. And in every story, there's a um, what I call a chug, chug, chug moment where mm. everything's going badly wrong and no one knows what to do. And then chug, 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 Fergus comes through. And uh, I think that sense of predictability makes children feel comfortable because some of the stories are quite challenging in the sense that the danger, um, people might die. And it's sort of a reflection of life on the water, I suppose. But if you know that Fergus is always going to come through, then I think you can be comfortable with them. Well, I'm just thinking that next time I get a Sydney Harbour Ferry, I'll be looking at the name, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Am I on I Fergus? Have, actually, interestingly, so many of the stories are based on real events on the harbour, um, but not all of them, obviously. Well, in that case, you've got an endless supply of stories to tell, really. There's a new story yeah. every day. Yeah, um, there almost is. Just coming back to uh, Captain Joe and the, the signs above his bed, um, I'm just yes. curious, do you, do you think we've missed out on an opportunity over the years to involve parents more deeply when writing children's books? Because it is really the parents who are reading the books to the children. Yeah. Well, it absolutely is. And I, I think it is possible uh, that parents could use their um, reading time as life lessons time. But... 
I actually prefer it just to be a narrative and for parents to be able to relax with their children. I think every parent tells their child a story at night. And I think um, that that should be just the time where you enjoy storytelling because it's such a fundamental part of of who we are as humans. We, we love telling stories. We love hearing stories. That rings true with some of my experiences, in fact, with, even with my own son, because sometimes... Yeah. Sometimes we'll, there'll be a moment of quiet and we'll be all sitting at the dinner table and he'll just start telling a story. And I, and I look yeah. at him and I think, where did you get that from? And how, <laughs> yeah. how did this come into your mind? And, uh, and then I think back to what we try to do at school where yeah. in an English class we say, all right, we're going to spend a few weeks now doing creative writing. Right, students, mm. I want you to get out your book and start writing creatively. And I think, yeah. well, hold on a second. If we had involved, just coming back to the original thing with, with parents and communicating with parents, um, if we had continued the dialogue with our children perhaps a little bit more actively, I mean, I want to be careful when I talk about this, but there's the mm. potential there that we could be, in fact, helping our children when they do finally get into that creative writing class. Yeah, I, I, I think that sounds to me as though it's right. I, we've always told Tom stories and me and my wife Renee as well and as a result now he's he's grown up he's at university now but we till, still tell stories together um, and his stories now are obviously much more developed than they were when he was younger but it's just become a natural part of our life and we tell stories he he generally leads with them and uh, we could spend half an hour to an hour every day just talking through a storyline and working it through. Really? So, so the, 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 two of, yeah. the two of you sit down as adults and you effectively shoot the breeze with a story? Yeah, as often as not, we're actually in the gym on the cross trainers or something. But, <laughs> but it's, yeah, we do. We do. And it just amazes me how Tom comes up with different plots and different characters um, just off the top of his head now. So is he involved in studying writing in some way? I'm, I'm fascinated by this. He actually he's uh, studying law at the moment and arts law. But um, I would love him to be a writer. I think it's uh, I have had so much pleasure from all all the um, comments and encouragement I've had from children and families about the Fergus books. That I think from an emotional perspective, it's much more rewarding than than being in the law. Well, Tom really could be leading the charge though on the uh, the rhyming couplet contract. <laughs> yeah, he could do. I mean, he's your man, he really, be. isn't he? <laughs> he is. He is. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious. I'm thinking back to Sydney Harbour now. Does Fergus have any friends that are just hiding around the corner in the next bay who might actually become a character in their own right? Um, that's an interesting thought. I, he's, he already has a few friends uh, like Angus and Tess the helicopter. And Tess the helicopter is pretty exciting. Although I think Sarah Ferguson wrote a book about helicopter. Um, I would like to see how uh, Focus develops and how the animations go. And if they get some traction and people are interested, then there's so many stories to tell and so many places to visit as well. But I I think uh, if the stories do uh, take off in the way that the books did, I think there'll definitely be more characters to come. I think that's a way of really uh, humanising or reducing the busyness and stress of the harbour for young people or for young children into something that's uh, a much more beautiful and tangible experience for them because they can, I'm imagining that a child might be able to actually go on a ferry and think, 
oh, my imagination is a part of this big thing that they call Sydney Harbour, and, and, and I, can write, I can write stories about this too, and I can be involved, and I can imagine that would be a very empowering experience for young children. Well, in fact, a number of schools have done that, and they've asked their children to come up with stories about Fergus, and then they've shared them with me. Is that well, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I've been to schools and read the books, and going there and seeing the artwork that they come up with, the pictures of, of fairies on the harbour or, or the helicopter, it's just the most amazing thing. It's a great experience to see the way schools have picked up on the theme and developed it with, with their students. So Fergus Ferry is developing his own fan club. <laughs> I hope so. It's crew. <laughs> well, I think you might uh, end up having Fergus as a, a set text. I'm sure that even high school students might be able to appreciate some of the uh, the poetic aspects of the stories. Well, I hope so. Um, it actually has amazed me how old some of the children are who still like Fergus. And I do hear stories of families who've had the books and then their eldest son starts reading them to the younger or, or daughter younger daughter or eldest daughter reads them to the younger son. It's, um, I think, the most rewarding thing, Colin. I think when I was at one reading at a library, one of the parents came up to me and said um, that it's impossible to overstate the impact that Fergus has had on our, house, on our household. And that is something which, obviously, because I'm telling you, is something that stayed with me. Mm. And it has been just so rewarding to get feedback from parents like that. It's just emotionally, it's an incredible thing. I'm just, uh, well, I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm, poor, I'm, I'm, I'm lost for words. I'm, I was just finding myself hooked into your story of telling how, uh, how satisfying that was for you because I'm just trying to imagine what it would be like to have such an impact on so many children on that level in such a local context because it really is a very uh, special context, I guess, for people who understand Sydney Harbour. It's... Um... It's a very best fun, and I've never actually um, been on uh, uh, on in public and had anyone say anything about Fergus until when they um, took me out on the harbour to do a, pho- a photograph for the newspaper article. Um, I was sitting at the back of the ferry with a Fergus book in my hand, and one of the deckhands on the ferry came up. He didn't know who I was, and he said, "That's a bloody good book." <laughs> I said, "Yeah, I taught my son to read with that book." <laughs> and um, you know, in terms of emotional reward, you you really couldn't ask for more than that. No, well, I mean, it's just inherently creative. I'm just listening to you talk. I, I live in Newcastle, and we have a working yeah. harbour up here. Now, it's um, it's an industrial harbour. But um, uh, just as we've been talking, I've been imagining the boats that I see regularly going up and down because we have, um, we've got a, a fleet of tugboats here and then there are service yep. vessels that keep the channels clear and so forth. And I'm, I'm thinking, gosh, there's, there's probably a whole world of unearthed ca- characters just hanging around Newcastle Harbour waiting to be uh, explored. Yeah, I know. That, well, a- any time you go out on the harbour, I see new vessels and think, hmm, wouldn't it be good to have a story about a crane on the harbour or a dredger? No one would like the dredger. <laughs> no, no, because he well, just but, dredges up all the dirt. Yes, exactly. But then uh, the harbour wouldn't work without them. So even the people with the worst jobs are, most, are the most essential sometimes, aren't they? Does Fergus get any uh, overseas visitors from the uh, cruise ships that come in? Interestingly, he hasn't had a cruise ship. He's had an he's had a um, an aircraft carrier. Wow! But a cruise ship story could be interesting. Well, there you go. Yeah, I'll, I'll be waiting with bated breath. He hasn't had a submarine yet, Colin. I'm quite tempted to have a submarine. Well, that well, you could uh, get quite controversial about submarines in Australia, certainly. 
I don't know whether it might not be a Japanese one. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) So um, where to for Fergus now? If I was to want to explore Fergus, what's the best way for me to find out about him? I think the very best way is to, um, and thanks for that, I think it's to go onto YouTube and have a look at the animations. And um, on the website, we have teacher's notes, which set up activities for classes based on the focus stories. So if, as in a schoolroom, if you're interested in having a bit of an exercise around the focus berry stories, hopefully they're engaging and the class will be engaged by them. But afterwards, there's a whole bunch of activities which we've uh, put together, and you can download those from from the Fergus Ferry website. And that's fergusferry.com? It is. So can parents use that at home? Do those exercises also work in the home context? Uh, they would do. And there are also some notes for parents on the website, um, which give a bit of background about the stories and bring out the messages in a way which perhaps um, if they're too subtle, you don't, enter, you don't um, under, undermine the message. In, sorry, you don't discover the messages um, just by reading the story. So there's a bit of help there for parents too. Uh, well, failing all else, you could just read the story and try to enjoy the narrative. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> John, it's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to exploring the books a little bit more. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you very much too, Colin. It's been a pleasure for me. You've been listening to Learning Capacity with Colin Klupik, brought to you by LearnFast. To find out more about Fergus Ferry, visit fergusferry.com or simply search for him on YouTube. To find out more about LearnFast, visit learnfasthome.com.au. And if you'd like to comment on this podcast, send us an email to feedback at learnfastgroup.com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.